Welcome to Sealy Talks. My name is Frida Greeley and I'm a program manager at the Sealy Institute in Prague. In this, our second series of Sealy Talks, we focus on the digitalization of justice and the courts, the use of technology to carry out judicial functions, from case management systems all the way through to conducting virtual or remote court hearings online. COVID-19 has seen the acceleration of digital justice and the use of remote hearings. In this series, we review the opportunities provided by the digitalization of justice and the challenges and benefits it presents to the judiciary in Central and Eastern Europe. This series features interviews, conversations and reports with leading judges, civil society actors and representatives of international institutions that advance the rule of law. Coming up in this podcast, we speak to Judge José Matos, a judge at the Court of Appeal of Porto in Portugal and the current president of the European Association of Judges. He expresses his concerns for the limitations of digital justice and discusses the additional responsibilities placed on an already pressured judiciary. But first we hear from Andrea Huber. She's head of the Human Rights Department at the OSCE Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. I started by asking her about human rights and the proper functioning of the judiciary under pandemic conditions. Judiciaries are, of course, crucial for the defense of human rights in general, and then um, even more so um, at a time when fundamental rights are restricted um, due to the public health emergency. Courts have an incredibly important function. They need to scrutinize the restrictions imposed by governments and parliaments on fundamental rights of individuals. They need to check the legality, the constitutionality, and the clarity of measures. And they need to uphold access to justice for people overall with their everyday uh, legal issues that affect our society. But of course, we have to keep in mind that the developments that we see today and the use of digital justice comes from the emergency laws, from the uh, restrictions, from the measures that have been imposed because it was not possible and is still not possible to uh, deliver justice in the way that it used to be. All measures, whether imposed by government, parliament or the judiciary, must comply with international law. This means that limitations must be temporary, proportionate and non-discriminatory. Andrea Huber also reminds us that while no specific measure of proportionality applies, in a changing epidemiological backdrop, the need for vigilance remains constant. I think it's important to flag that as we go through different phases of the pandemic, this question cannot be answered once and for all. Rather, this answer will differ depending on the epidemiological situation. So some measures and policies uh, may be permissible at the height of the pandemic, but they may become disproportionate in receding periods and they may become entirely unnecessary if and when we finally emerge from the pandemic. And if they become unnecessary, then they're impermissible under human rights law. So as a result, we just need to constantly review and reassess these measures against necessity, proportionality, and we need to constantly keep in mind that they must not become discriminatory. 
While what is necessary and proportionate will vary according to circumstances, Andrea Huber cautions that decisions should only be taken after consultation with the legal profession, judges, lawyers and other stakeholders. But she notes that flexibility is key and proportionality will not only depend on the prevalence of the virus, but on how justice is served in a given area, the types of courts involved, which vary by size and location, and the types of proceedings themselves. So what is appropriate for a civil court, for example, and may be proportionate for a procedure there, may not be for criminal courts or family courts for that matter. And it may be less difficult to hold online uh, uh, trials for appeal courts, for example, because they're often anyway uh, mostly um, delivered in writing in many jurisdictions. Whereas it is more challenging at the first instance court where witnesses need to be heard and need to be assessed for the credibility of what they're testifying. Court decisions in the context of criminal law and detention are, of course, particularly sensitive when it comes to human rights because we are depriving individuals of their liberty. And this has massive and long term impacts. There can be no mistakes and fair trial rights of suspects and defendants need to be upheld, otherwise it is not a justice system. Emphasising the importance of Article 5 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which requires a trial within reasonable time, Andrea Huber also mentions Article 9 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Paragraph 3 in particular, which underlines the primacy of the court as a physical, interpersonal interaction when it states Anyone arrested or detained on a criminal charge shall be brought promptly before a judge or other office holder authorised by law to exercise judicial power, a position which is also substantiated by the United Nations. UN Human Rights Committee has clearly stated that this needs to be heard in person, not online, because it's not possible for the judge to assess whether the defendant is under any pressure or has been subject to torture or ill treatment. We must not forget that this moment at court in front of the judge is the only short period in time when the defendant is not in full control of law enforcement or prison authorities. And so we need to interpret the suitability of online hearings, keeping in mind the very purpose of this safeguard. It's not a tick the box exercise that we have some kind of uh, hearing about this. While recognising the positive potential afforded by digital justice, especially during a pandemic when hearings cannot be held, Andrea expresses concern for the impact of the pandemic, a further backlog of cases and a consequent process of prioritisation that will be required to administer them, possibly even long after the pandemic is over. But she also cites the unlikely opportunity created by the pandemic that has forced the hand of change and change for the better. I've worked on criminal justice, I think, for almost two decades now. And in my view, the COVID pandemic has forcefully underpinned the importance of reforms of the criminal justice system. Already before there has been uh, some discourse and increasing discourse pointing out the over-criminalization and over-incarceration and the social, uh, racial and gender bias in criminal justice systems. Justice is not blind, unfortunately. Marginalized people and minorities are overrepresented in the world's prisons. And so the congestion of the criminal justice system has become even bigger with the pandemic because of the backlogs at the courts. 
And so it should be really crucial not to return to normal when it comes to the criminal justice system, but to use the chance and reform it now. As well as highlighting a moment for reform of the criminal justice system, Andrea Huber notes the move to digital justice has been largely embraced by a once sceptical judiciary, but she also expresses a note of caution. Again, we need to look at uh, the human rights safeguards and what um, exemptions from um, hearing people in person um, are, are necessary and proportionate. We need to uphold these principles. There's no convenience principle when it comes to human rights. On a broader note, Andrea expresses reservations that limitations necessitated by pandemic conditions and introduced on a temporary basis could become more permanent with consequent impact for those seeking access to justice. There is a risk, I think, that um, human rights restrictions, which we um, have learned to accept because of the public health uh, emergency, become normalised and are not rolled back once the pandemic recedes or starts to be more controlled with vaccine rollout, etc. And courts will have to play a crucial role in this regard. They need to scrutinize on a continuous basis the restrictions to fundamental rights that are argued with public health requirements. Extraordinary conditions often call for extraordinary measures, and so the balance between fundamental human rights and access to justice on the one side and public health risks on the other side continues. An observation not lost on Andrea Huber. Human rights and the rule of law uh, have been really tested in our times. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we, we live, um, basically the German expression of what is claimed to be a Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Uh, I'm afraid, uh, unfortunately, we, we really do. Interesting times indeed. And thank you, Andrea, for that very candid appraisal of human rights principles, which in exceptional times are even more pressing and salient. Our next guest is Jose Matos, a judge at the Court of Appeal of Porto in Portugal and president of the European Association of Judges. I recently caught up with Judge Matos for Sealy Talks and I started by asking him to outline the significance of this global pandemic for society, the administration of justice and its impact on human rights. Well, Jorge Luis Borges, uh, one of my favorite authors, the Argentinian genius, uh, once said that uh, perhaps uh, the history of humankind is the history of a few metaphors. And uh, the metaphor for the situation we all are living is Black Swan. Uh, Black Swan is an event that is unpredictable and has devastating effects. And this is, illustrates the main thing that we can learn from the pandemic, the fragility of our, of our own experiences and particularly the fragility of our knowledge. Pandemic, in, in many senses for us judges, was like to take the ground beneath our feet and also regarding human rights. So pandemic will be our black swan. But it is the limitations on freedoms and its impact on human rights that most concerns the judge. And similar to Andrea, Judge Matos calls for vigilance and a guarded approach for judiciaries in Central and Eastern Europe, especially against a backdrop of continued political uncertainty. Due to the pandemic, the level of interference with human rights was, for most of us, the greatest we will ever experience in our lifetime. 
words like dystopia are now usually applied, especially if considering the levels of control that is possible for governments due to the technology. While accepting that the purpose of the lockdown was to save lives, obviously, in compliance with the Article 2 of the Human Rights Convention, it is vitally important that checks and balances are in place to ensure that human rights remain protected. Obviously, judges, courts play a decisive role on this protection. So my very first note is that the enforcement of emergency laws approved by national authorities must be careful, supervised, scrutinized by the judiciary. If we had to the dystopian temptations, the present rise of populism, autocratic regimes in a context of democracy crisis, it becomes undisputable the decisiveness of this discussion and the importance of the intervention of the judges and the judiciary as a whole. But Judge Matos does not in any way underestimate the crisis caused by COVID-19 and acknowledges that public health measures rightfully take precedence during the pandemic. Obviously, the first priority, first and foremost, uh, total solidarity to our fellow citizens. One can only echo Albert Camus' words in the novel The Plague. I have no idea what is waiting me or what will happen when this all ends. For the moment, I know this. There are sick people and they need curing. This is the first approach for all of us. But even under pandemic conditions, where COVID-induced quarantines have caused critical repercussions for the administration of justice, Judge Matos reminds us of the Bangalore principles and their relevance for the judiciary. A judge must accept personal restrictions that might be viewed as burdensome by the ordinary citizen and should those do so freely and willingly. The duty of each judge to be promptly available to serve our fellow citizens in a permanent pledge to public service and social solidarity. In the absence of access to justice, people are unable to have their voice heard, exercise their rights, challenge discrimination or all decision makers effectively accountable. So this is why the Bangalore principle said that it's so important for judges and for those who work on the judicial system to be promptly and freely and willingly uh, ready to act. And it is within the context of protecting human rights and providing access to justice that Judge Matos calls on courts to maximise the benefits of digital justice and to promote and adopt it as a means to mitigate the closure or even partial closure of the courts. According to OECD, only 46% of human beings live under the protection of the law where more than 50% of people are now active users of internet in one way or another. That means that more people in the world now have access to internet than access to justice. This is a very impressive fact. More people with access to internet than people with access to courts to justice. The solution of remote courts, online justice, seems to allow a greater capacity of intervention of public justice because they are more more efficient and can have this ductility that is so important, especially today. 
And with over 12 months of varying levels of restrictions in the courts, Judge Matos makes some telling observations on the role of digital justice, its limitations, and the appropriate use of e-justice by the courts. First, e-files, e-filing, areas concerning digital internal platforms. An absolute yes. Remote hearings. This is another issue, totally different. If you are speaking about digital internal platforms, I don't see any problem in using aboundedly the digital justice. But if you are speaking about justice, remote justice, particularly about remote hearings, then the discussion is quite different. Here, Judge Matos makes further qualifications. The first level, for me, is totally accepted by the judicial community, in particular by judges, that that, that they could exist, should exist, remote meetings where only judges themselves participate. The same may be said by meeting of meetings of lawyers internally, lawyers speaking with each other as representatives of the litigants discussing among them, themselves. And drawing a distinction between proceedings that do or do not require the production of evidence, Judge Matos sees further circumstances where the use of digital tools may be applied by the courts. A second level concerning video conferences is the video conference held between judges on one end and prosecutors, lawyers, bailiffs on the other end. This involves sessions, for example, aimed at conciliating the parties or settling a case. Normally, there is no production of evidence. At this second level, I think the use of these digital tools can be also accepted without any major problems. But it is in proceedings that require the production of evidence and access to the public that Judge Matos draws the line the participation of occasional or case-related actors, witnesses, experts, parties, testifying at the level of fact findings, etc. In this segment, judges have been expressing clear concerns because of the dangers related to guaranteeing a fair trial, especially in criminal procedures. I am critical of the use of remote courts in these cases. Also, because these kind of hearings must be public, publicly, publicly available, should have an audience. Any proceedings involving the production of evidence or from a broader perspective, any acts, judicial acts that directly or indirectly affect the defense of the accused or the protection of the victim, for instance, in family cases, should be carried out in person, ensuring the required immediacy. While noting exceptions could exist, Judge Matos cautions that they should be freely consented to by the parties. Another dimension of judicial proceedings that cannot be underestimated is the perceived sense of justice, the right to a tried and tested judicial procedure and its significance for one seeking justice. Exists a dimension related to the waiving of facts, demanding the physical presence of the parties, witness, and other actors before the court to guarantee an adequate perception of credibility of the evidence and of those who are witnessing. To have a day in court, this expression that my day in court has a symbolical meaning that should not be undervalued. At the end of the day, if any resource does not comply the fundamental goal of being at the service of 
our fellow citizens, particularly those more fragile, it must be simply dismissed. And outlining further conditions required for the appropriate use of digital justice, Judge Matos is equally mindful of the digital aspect of the solution, where his mantra may best be described as to tread carefully and progress cautiously. The implementation of e-justice can only be achieved through the direct and essential contribution of the judiciary, which implies active participating in the structuring of digital architecture applied to the courts, obligation of initial and continuous training, and availability of adequate resources and technical support for judges. The second one, a particular care is needed to guarantee the integrity of IT systems. I'm talking about, obviously, protection of data. The third condition was to prevent the dangers that the extensive use of technology can pose to the physical and mostly to the mental well-being of users. And finally, under certain circumstances, the use of technology has the potential to weaken the independence of the judiciary and the essential role of the judge. So with that, thank you, Judge Matos, for that very comprehensive overview of digital justice and for your approach, which seems both principled and practical. And thanks again to our earlier speaker, Andrea Huber, who reminded us in these trying times for human rights and what is required to maintain them. Coming up in our next podcast, we will be joined by Penelope Gibbs of Transform Justice and David Anderson, Director at the International Legal Foundation. They will help us assess the potential impact of digital justice. So join us as we discuss fairness, rights that are in peril, and the challenges of remote proceedings for individuals in detention. Don't forget to check out our website at seelyinstitute.org for the show notes and more resources on these series. Till next time, this is Seely Talks. I'm Frida Greeley, and thanks for listening. Thank you.